Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome again to the Family Renewal Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking with David and Shirley Quine. This is part two of our interview with them. They are the authors and publishers of Cornerstone Curriculum. And in our last episode, if you didn't get a chance to hear that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. We had a chance to get to know them a little bit better, to hear their backstory of their journey of faith as a family and how God led them to begin homeschooling their nine children and then to begin writing curriculum. David explained how he didn't really do it to publish a curriculum. He was trying to create curriculum that was usable for his children. Uh, They started homeschooling their children back in around 1981 uh, formally. And in those days, some people don't know this, but there really weren't curriculum companies that would sell to you. And so uh, you really had to be creative to even find materials to teach your children. So David began creating his own, and eventually Cornerstone Curriculum was born. And uh, David Shirley, was that, did you say it was somewhere around 1984 when you first started writing your own curriculum? Uh, Yes, that's about right, actually. Okay. the, the math program and the science and music and art. Okay, 1984. You know, a lot of people just don't realize uh, how long you guys have been involved in homeschool leadership, um, speaking, and encouraging families. Uh, you have been a big influence in uh, shaping my own educational philosophy and worldview. From the time I was a teenager, I was reading your articles and. You actually have written a book that covers the the topic of, I would say, parenting, really, more than just educational philosophy, but it's a bit of a hybrid being uh, a book on the big picture uh, and goal of parenting, and then also, uh, from an educational standpoint, what the method is, so sort of the model and the method of of how uh, to teach with a biblical worldview, and it's called Let Us Highly Resolve. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and uh, what people can expect if they pick up a copy of the book. What's what's the uh, content that's covered in that book? Yeah, uh, thank you so much for having us uh, on. It's really a blessing to our family, so thank you so much. Uh, it's really our heart. Uh, that book really contains our heart message of discipleship and discipleship around a biblical way of looking at life. Um, so uh, we encourage, of course, in the introduction of the first chapter, you know, what is a biblical worldview? And uh, we progress through there, basically giving our parents um, a challenge, uh, encouragement. Um, it's, it's like uh, Paul said in um, Thessalonians that the dad was to, um, in a discipleship relationship, he describes a father who is imploring and encouraging and giving direction. And this book, I think, helps parents have a direction. Uh, it's not a fine detail book. Uh, it's uh, laying a, a structure and a framework that can guide families um, in the development of a biblical uh, way of looking at life uh, for their children. It's, it's, uh, it's our heart, honestly. 
Well, I love the book. It's a great book. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's called Let Us Highly Resolve. It's available at cornerstonecurriculum.com and it'll give you kind of a good template or overview if you're thinking of of buying a curriculum that will teach from a distinctively biblical worldview, I'd recommend buying that book first because that's going to give you the overview. Uh, and then, and then you can understand a little bit better, especially if you're looking into cornerstone curriculum, how that all fits together. I, I guess I describe your book as the box top in a way. It's like, it, it tells you what the picture's supposed to look like. And then the curriculum is sort of the pieces that help you to fit it all together. Um, with the, term biblical worldview. Uh, most of my listeners probably are familiar with it, but I am constantly uh, picking up new listeners on our podcast. And so I would like you to describe what that is. And I, I like to always juxtapose the, the biblical worldview against a humanist worldview, because in some ways those two are really the, the competing forces. Uh, and, and you can you know talk about a lot of different kinds of worldviews, but humanism really is kind of a catch for most of them, you know, because either something is God-centered or it's man-centered. And, uh, and so humanism, I think, is a, is a contrast. But what would biblical worldview education look like over against humanistic education? How, how would you describe that or define that or, or quantify that in some way? Well, that's a, that's a uh, five-hour presentation. You just ask. But we'll try to. Uh, it uh, is, yes. Um, you know, when you think about a worldview, a worldview is, um, people have described it as uh, a pair of glasses that you might put on, so you see things one way or see things another way. Um, it's been described as a filing cabinet, or it could now be described as the desktop of a computer. Um, I like to think of it as a jigsaw puzzle. And um, there's um, all these pieces of life, uh, and uh, as a jigsaw puzzle, of course, if you have the box top, you can see what the picture looks like. Um, and you would have like two different box tops. One says, this is what the picture looks like. And those said, no, this is what the picture looks like. And so now you have all these puzzle pieces. And the, the difficulty is that some of the puzzle pieces are missing. Uh, and some of them have been torn or ripped. And most of them, uh, the image has been distorted. And so now you're trying to take this these pieces, and you're trying to fit them together to create a picture of the world. And, um, and, and the question becomes, which view of the world, which top represents the best joining of together of these jigsaw puzzle pieces? And that's our goal as, as parents, I believe, that God's given us the responsibility, and now we have the opportunity to help to formulate in a child's heart, soul, and mind what the biblical picture looks like. And it always stands in contrast to the secular position because um, the secular worldview and the biblical worldview, they're answering the same questions, but they're answering them from a different vantage point. And, of course, the secular worldview is answering from, you know, the philosophies of Plato or Aristotle or Socrates or Darwin uh, or Freud or a variety of people that uh, Western civilization has deemed to be worthy of trust. And the biblical position is say, we're looking at asking God to answer those questions, those same seven or eight questions. Uh, uh, and, and of course the biblical position, of course, is um, it's not 
man-driven. It's, it's God-explained, God-revealed. And, and we want to begin to help uh, our children to have a trust in God and trust in his word that the answers that God has given are superior answers. I think it's the reason why uh, you, you can say that, that we have, um, that we're, um, we're better understanding the world than even our teachers. And I think the implications were if a teacher who's brilliant, but he's basing his whole philosophical life upon false assumptions, then his conclusions are going to all be wrong. They might be sound. They might be consistent. But if they're starting from the wrong place, they're going to be incorrect. Uh, you know, another way to think about a worldview is that you could say it's a map. And so basically you have two maps. You have the biblical worldview map and you have the secular worldview map. And a map tells you, of course, where you are. And it gives you a, a destination and a way to get there. And if you are reading the secular worldview map, it's going to take you in one direction. But if you're, um, if you're embracing and being guided by the biblical worldview, it's going to take you in a whole different perspective. So um, to, to us, it's always good, particularly at the junior high and high school level, uh, to compare what the Bible says with what other people are saying. Not at the elementary age. I think that's a different story there. You're trying to really give students the vast sweep of what the scriptures reveal and uh, so that they're really being established in the truth of the Word of God, uh, whether it's talking about history or science or economics or, or government or whatever uh, subject you're studying. I have heard some people describe Cornerstone curriculum as a classical education curriculum. Is that a label that you feel comfortable with? And uh, if not, what would be distinctions that you would make that you that may help to qualify uh, in what way it's similar or in what ways it might be different from what people would come to expect from a, a traditional classical education approach? Uh, I think there's some similarities, uh, though uh, I prefer not to be probably a part of that uh, classification. Uh, the similarities, of course, we're reading classic literature. So we do read Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. Um, oh, uh, we, we do read Homer and Virgil. Um, but I think we read it from a different um, perspective. Uh, you know, so for example, uh, um, you take the Divine Comedy by Dante. It, it might be, it's a trilogy of books. It might be the best trilogy that's ever been written, ever in history. Um, and we're certainly going to acknowledge that. But what, what my concern is, as I have students read that, is here's the biblical ideas, and here are the ideas of, of uh, the Greek philosophers, and they join those together. Well, to me, that's a huge problem. And so I try to help students be able to identify that problem. You know, discernment is such an important uh, thing for students right now, Israel. Uh, we, we need to pray that our children will have great discernment. Uh, and the Word of God um, is a truth detector. You know, when you go to the grocery store today or some store and you give them a $20 bill and they take that little marker and they mark across it to see if it's a true $20 bill. And I believe that God has given us His Word, particularly Philippians 4.8, if we look that up eventually if people want to, or you can look it up on your own that God has given us 
a way to identify those things that are true from those things that are false. And I, I'm, I know that God is so concerned about what we teach our children, particularly before they're able to go, if this is true or since this is true, then this is true. Therefore, these conclusions can be drawn. And so uh, we wouldn't, for example, introduce a lot of false ideas to young children. Um, we, we would hold those false ideas to, to be uh, analyzed and evaluated. As, as Paul said, um, we're to um, test all things. We're to prove all things. In other words, we're to evaluate all things to determine whether or not they're consistent with the Word of God teaches. And so to me, the book Dante, by, by Dante, the, the Divine Comedy, um, is a book that when you marry these two ideas together, you don't get greater truth, honestly. And I'm afraid that I know there are some classical people, not all, of course, because you know, classical is probably not that narrow. It's, you know, like that. Um, but there would be some that would say the joining together of the, of the Western culture, the Greek and Roman culture, and their philosophies with the Bible produces something greater. I, 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 I just resist that notion. And well, so, Thomas Aquinas did that to a great extent, you know, trying to merge that Western Gre- Greco-Roman philosophy with theology and to create kind of a synthesis or a hybrid. Um, Well, the whole idea of the Renaissance, the Renaissance, that word means rebirth. And so what was it the rebirth of? And so if you did a timeline of history and so you start with the Greco Roman age of Greece, and then you move the Christianity was born in that atmosphere, that worldview, and then Christianity became dominant. Um, You might call that the dark ages or the middle ages. I think the key is, your interpretation of history, whether you'll call it the dark ages or the middle ages, they pretty much rejected the ideas of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, They left the temples that were magnificent buildings, but because they were worshiping, they believed demonic forces, they let those buildings go into ruin. And then you had the Renaissance that was the rebirth of, it was the rebirth of the Greek and Roman period. So they were drawing forward those philosophies, those ideas of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and Virgil, and Homer, they were bringing those into uh, the church, honestly. And so, um, not to say that Aquinas um, lost his faith, I'm not going to say that, Um, but I think what he did is he opened the door to the next generation, or the next generation, or the next generation, to lose the authority of the Word of God uh, over these uh, philosophers. I agree completely. And I, I love the fact that your curriculum does not shy away from introducing falsehood and error as falsehood and error, but that it does it at an age-appropriate time. So when, when a child, you know, and, and you don't rely heavily on this, but those that come from a classical world would be familiar with the, the trivium and the levels of learning through the grammar and then the, the, the um, logic and then rhetoric. Um, that that you're not introducing error and falsehood at the grammar stage. You're introducing it more at the latter end of the logic and and more into the rhetoric level. And some people accuse homeschoolers of trying to shelter their children from ideas that are contrary to their own. So 
some people have have said to me over the years, well, homeschooling is a bad idea because your children are going to grow up and, and they will never have heard of evolution or, you know, they will never have heard of Karl Marx or they won't know that there are people out there in the world who believe differently than them. Well, that's not an intent of Cornerstone curriculum. The, the point of Cornerstone curriculum is not to children from knowing that there's a world full of bad ideas out there. But Cornerstone, unlike some other programs that even purport to be Christian, um, weighs in heavily on the content and helps the student to think it through. Some other programs uh, give children these books that are full of false ideas and presents them sort of as the good stuff. You know, these are the classics. So here, read this. And there's very little commentary. There's very little direction. Sometimes there's a, a student guide that asks questions like, what do you believe about this? Or what do you think about this? Well, when you're introducing that to a 14-year-old, um, they don't know what they think. They don't know what to believe. They, they need guidance, right? And so I love that about your curriculum. I, here I am talking about your curriculum. I should let you talk about your curriculum. But that's one of the things that I like about what you do. Is a student who completes Cornerstone curriculum, they're going to know what they believe about the world because they're going to be exposed to the Communist Manifesto and Das Kapital and, and Plato and so on. They're going to know what these works are uh, and, and in literature and art as well uh, and in music. Um, and they're going to understand the difference between Wagner and Bach, and they're going to understand, you know, a Rembrandt versus a, you know, a, a Jackson Pollock or whatever. They're going to be able to think through these things. So, um, you, you know, you know, Israel. A lot of times, parents will say, "Well, I don't know the answers," and and our teaching model that we use, the observation, interpretation, application model that we use in all of our curriculum, we bring alongside great authors, great Christian authors that are going to be a part of the explanation of what you just described. And so it's not like parents are left to themselves or children are left to themselves. We better not do that because we, we're responsible. Honestly, parents are responsible um, as much as you can be responsible with sinful people. We're sinful. Their children are sinful, but we are responsible. I believe before God to, to help our children to think on right things, you know? And so if we read, for example, uh, Frankenstein, well, Mary Shelley's view of, of God and man isn't biblical. You know, so if you just say, I want you to read this book. Well, if you don't have someone come alongside to help them to see that that is inconsistent with the word of God, we could be diverting children from Christian thinking. And so that's the reason why we would read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde alongside two opposing views. One says that man's heart's good, kind, gentle, compassionate, tenderhearted. And the other says, no, no. Uh, and, and wait a second. And, and you go, wait a second. If he's so good, kind, and tenderhearted, why is he doing these evil things? And the author basically said, well, the problem is not here. The problem is outside. You change the society. You fix the society. You provide new laws for the society. And he's going to do all the right things. But in Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, he's going, no, the problem's not out there. The problem's in my heart. And I want to do what's right. Sounds like Roman, I mean, yeah, Romans 7, or yeah, Romans 7. I want to do what's right, but I can't do it. You know, and so here we have this contrast between a secular view and, a, and not to say that Stevenson was a Christian or anything, but maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But his ideas are consistent with the Bible. 
And so now we have these two opposing views. They both can't be right. And, and so now students, because they spent a lot of time understanding from the Word of God what the heart of man's like, now they're able to, if you will, um, discern the difference between the two. But then it's like, oh, but what if my children don't get it? That's a good question. It's a, in honest, it's an honest question, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they can, they can call me if they want, but the way that we structured it is we have the students read a, a follow-up book called The Deadliest Monster. And um, in that book, Jeff... Um, right. Jeff Baldwin. Yeah, John Baldwin. Um, he describes those two books. And so most times children would go, Mom, Dad, look, this author said the same thing and I did. And, and if that's not the case, it's like, it would be, oh, I didn't see it like that, but now I do. You know, and so we, we bring along these authors that, that have a biblical perspective that can provide the guidance, provide the direction for the students. Now, if, if you're in a regular school, you know what you would do differently, Israel? You'd start by reading The Deadliest Monster. And then Jeff Baldwin would tell you how to understand these books. And then you'd read the two books and you would never do any analysis on your own. And I, I, want, I want students to be adequately prepared to go out into the culture, listen to political speeches, listen to economic speeches, go to the museums and listen and look at the paintings, go to uh, uh, symphonies and, and listen to what they're doing and say, hey, does this line up? with what the word of God says. The word of God says this, and do they line up or, or is there some kind of a mismatch? Yes. I, that's, I think that's our responsibility as parents. It's a whole, a whole new way. We, we teach the same things, you know, than, than everybody else, that everybody else does, but we're always saying, does it align with the word of God? And that, to me, gives discernment. There's so many young people, even though they're raised in the church, that they're being saturated within a culture that teaches them anti-Christian worldviews that they don't realize necessarily are anti-Christian. So this generation of young people, um, you know, maybe not so much this generation, but the last 20, 30 years, you know, grew up on Star Wars and couldn't see the inherent Buddhism that was embedded into the, the whole framework of Star Wars. Uh, a lot of them even think it's a Christian narrative. Or today, you know, again, going back a few years, but Hunger Games and how they, they come to just watch these movies and they don't know how to think critically about it. Or they, they go to, to school and if you see anything about the youth fiction that's promoted, that's recommended reading in schools or, or promoted in libraries, uh, absolutely filthy. Now, if they read the classics, they're lucky, right? But the classics sometimes are like, they're going to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hoth. They're going to read Grapes of Wrath, or they're going to be reading Oscar Wilde, or whatever. And so, you know, it's not as though the books that they're getting are coming from a Christian framework, much the opposite. And so, I, I think what you're trying to do is is not merely tell them how to think about every individual piece of literature or art because you can't, uh, there's too much out there, but to give them a framework to know how to think about it and what questions to ask and yeah, exactly what that process exactly. is. So, so what, uh, what grade levels or what um, age ranges does your curriculum cover? 
well, we start uh, pre-K and, uh, uh, and, and in some subjects, we go all the way up through uh, high school, depending upon the subject. Um, the advantage of uh, basically Shirley and I writing everything is that it's always consistent. The disadvantage is that it might take more than one lifetime. <laughs> well, tell us about the names of the different uh, components of the curriculum. Okay. Um, um, let's keep it, we'll, we'll kind of keep it in the context of what we're talking about in terms of biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, if, I hope we'll have time to do this, but I think that there, uh, there's five steps in, in developing a child so that they'll think Christianly for a lifetime. Or put another way, that you'll be imparting to them a biblical view of the world. And um, the, the first um, step is where we're going to give students the opportunity to have a vast understanding of the Word of God. And Shirley, you want to jump in here? Well, one way, um, or one curriculum that we've written to help with that is called the Grand Story. And um, it's a, we call it the history of the world for the Christian family. Um, it, is, it goes across disciplines. Um, so it, it's not just the history of the world, but it also incorporates geography and literature and Bible and narration and copy work. And, and uh, we've incorporated um, quality literature so that families, a lot of family read aloud, and which is just fostering as we talked about in our last podcast a little bit, um, relationship between um, family members as well as parent and child. Uh, that's all being built because we're, when we're reading these things together, we're sharing, we're having a shared experience. Of, and, you know, um, some great authors such as Gladys Hunt, who talks a lot about the value of literature in our children's lives. And one of the things she says about it is it gives us the opportunity to share an experience that we may never have to go through. Say, for example, the Holocaust. We, you know, we never want to have to go through that with our children, yet we can read about it together and it becomes a shared experience for us. And um, so we always incorporate in all of our curriculum, excellent literature. So it's, and it's, it's, tried and true literature. It's things that um, have lasted and because they're valuable. And people who are familiar with the unit study method would probably be able to connect well with uh, your, the structure of your curriculum, correct? Yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, and, and during that first step, the second step is joined and linked closely to that because um, the students are getting uh, a firm foundation in that the Bible is true in every subject. Isn't that important? You know, it's true historically, it's true scientifically, it's true uh, in uh, every phase. And Absolutely. that foundation uh, that begins really in the elementary grades will be the foundation for a, a lifetime, we hope, uh, in their lives. So that's the second step. I, I think Shirley was going to say that, and I said it uh, in, her, in her place. Um, the... Uh, What's really happening is informally at that point, um, a st- a st- the students are informally answering seven worldview questions. And uh, our book, Answers for Difficult Days, is a Bible study on that. And uh, it's self-contained, though it's a part of a larger study. Our 
program uh, starting points. But in in this Bible study, um, it's we're leading students to converse with God about the seven most important questions that can be answered. Uh, again, the secular worldview is going to ask these same questions. Is there a God? And if so, what's he like? So the secular humanist answers that question one way, and a Christian answers that question a different way. And so we're, we're leading students to see from the Word of God, what does God say about himself? And of course, he, he exists, he's the creator, he's the provider, he, you know, all the things that, that God has said about himself. Students will go, God, tell me about yourself. And then the second question I think is so critical is how did we get here? What's the origin of the universe? Again, the secular humanist has a position and we have a position. At this point, we're not really talking about the secular position. We're talking now seventh or eighth grade or maybe ninth grade. We're, we're still focusing on establishing what God has said to be true. Right. Yeah. The third question is what's the nature and character of man? What's it? What's in man's heart? So I mentioned a while ago with, with uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and Frankenstein. So there's seven questions, and this is a great little independent Bible study if you'd like to do it that way, or uh, it can be used as a part of our, our bigger book. I guess I show this. Um, I'm not really a show until um, curriculum person, honestly. <laughs> so this is a little, you would think that I would be more so, but I prefer and Some of our it. listeners will only be catching the audio for this. So thankfully the, we have the visuals for those on YouTube and those that are listening to the audio, they only get the description of it. So yeah. So those are, there's seven questions all together. And we think that those seven questions, they really lay uh, a clear ability uh, to engage in the fourth step which I've kind of already alluded to again, but you want to say anything about the fourth step? Well, um, that, that students will be introduced again to a few selected books. And some of those books will be at, at the older ages. Some will be consistent with the biblical worldview. Some will not. And, but, it, but regardless of whether they are or not, they're being helped to analyze that literature. Yeah, because, you know, music, I mean, excuse me, the cinema or books, they're taking you out of the world that you're in, and they're planting you into a new world, if it's fiction. Um, and so we need to be able to, to identify what are the basic assumptions of this author. It's not necessarily that you don't uh, enjoy it if it's not a Christian book or a Christian movie, but you can identify, wait a second, I know clearly that that is not consistent with the, what the Word of God teaches. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, if you're in a, in a conversation with someone that also saw that movie or, or read that book, you can have a, a point of conversation to say, you know, uh, what did you think about this? You know, and raise a question, because what you're trying to get them to do is to see that their assumptions are false assumptions. And that's the beauty, I think, of what one of the beauties of what Francis Schaeffer said. He said that everybody has a worldview. And so the question is, which is the most consistent? And if you start with the secular world, you need to go, and if this is true, then is this true? Oh, yeah, it would be. And if this is true, is this true? Do you believe this to be true? Well, I don't know for sure if I go that far. Well, it's a logical flow. And if this is true in your starting point, then this would also have to be true. And the person goes, well, I can't believe that. I, I don't believe that. And you go, well, it is logical. It's a logical flow of the ideas 
from the ideas because of the assumption that you started with. But I don't have that problem because I don't start from that set of assumptions. I start from a different set of assumptions, different set of beliefs, I guess you could say, another way. And then the final step, we believe, is where you do a, a historical study of the flow of ideas and the flow of thought through history. And, and in that, you're watching um, the culture at that particular snapshot of time and saying, these are the things that they believe as evidenced in music and art and science and government and literature and philosophy. And do those align with the word of God again? And if they do, what picture do they give you? You know, Ian Schaefer talked about uh, a tapestry. And such a beautiful illustration when she said, uh, you know, a tapestry is a beautiful image. And you have the horizontal, which actually creates the image, and vertical threads that you don't see behind. And those vertical threads are the worldview, really, of that particular time period. And so you're looking at this tapestry, and it's being held together by a set of ideas, assumptions. But I think what ends up happening when you get to secular assumptions back here, the tapestry falls apart because the world can't hold together uh, with secular humanistic ideas. It falls apart. And the order and structure, whether it's in music or art or economics or or politics, the order and structure is lost. And only Christians really have the the final answer um, to the totality of life. And that's what we want to impart to children. And it can be done. It sounds pretty difficult. But honestly, my goal, I think the, the blessing that God has given to me is I'm a simple person, honestly. And I try to make complicated things simple for all people to understand. And, you know, it used to be, uh, Israel, in 1972 and 3 and 4, when we were helping students to, uh, who were being challenged at, their, at the University of, of South Dakota where we were uh, uh, working with a Christian organization, they were being challenged on all these various fields. And they would come to us and say, well, what's the answer to this? What's the answer to this? It might have been in uh, history or it might have been in psychology or geology or whatever. And they didn't know the answers to, their, to those questions. And that's really where God gave me the vision um, to get involved in education. And so I went back to school to get my uh, master's degree in curriculum design so that I could learn how to um, create a curriculum that would adequately prepare uh, children for the next generation. And well, a couple of verses. Shirley, would you mind reading Philippians chapter 2? We have time to read a Bible verse. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Yeah, and in Philippians chapter 2, um, he's talking about the people in Philippi. Remember what I said a while ago, that Christianity was born in a culture that was really anti-Christian, of course, right? And so here's what Paul is saying to these people in Philippi. Holding out and offering to all men the word of life, so that in the day of Christ they may have something uh, of which to rejoice and glory in, that I didn't run my race in vain or spend my labor to no purpose. And the preceding verse, could you read that? Yeah, sorry, I left that one out. That you may show yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation, among whom you are seen as bright lights. Um, shining out clearly in the dark world and then holding out um, to and offering to all men the word of life. Yeah, so here Paul is saying, 
Christians, I know we're all living in a, in a world that's twisted. False ideas are everywhere. And here we have the Word of God that says this, and the culture is saying this. And, and Paul is saying, we can live as lights. And the key, the, there's an interesting word. It says, and Shirley's version said, holding forth the Word of Life. But that word holding forth, that would be like sharing it with somebody else. That word can also be holding on to or clinging to. I think it's a beautiful picture that, that we want to have our children holding on to the Word of God because it's an anchor for our life, but also to then holding forth or sharing that good news with other people because we don't want to just hold it to ourselves. But we do want our children to be strong in their faith, standing firm in their faith. And, 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 and we want to teach all the same subjects that everybody else teaches because they need to be adequately prepared to know what science is saying today and then analyze it to see if it's consistent or inconsistent with the Word of God. So these five steps, I think, um, at least provide a framework for our curriculum and for our philosophy of life of what we're trying to impart to our children. And it's, it's doable for actually uh, any family. So, so the names of the different subjects, uh, making math meaningful for math, your science curriculum is? Uh, science to search. Science to oh. search. And then you have, is it a junior high worldview course, the starting points? What, what age or grade do you recommend students start starting points? Go ahead. Um, we would really highly recommend about the eighth grade. That's a perfect time when um, students have reached the ability to reason and, and at least they're, they're beginning to and they're mm-hmm. opening up in a way that that makes it a real good time. Eighth or ninth grade is our recommendation for that. Yeah. Okay. And then after they finish starting points, they can roll right into Worldviews for the Western World. Yes. And um, th- that can take, I, I would presume... Um, varying amounts of time for different students to complete. Right. It's, uh, uh, I wrote it as a three-year program, though some people turn it into a four-year program. It's really a lifelong program. Uh, you know, that Philippians, I mean, that Peter verse, 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, you want to read that, get that going up and come back to that. Yeah. Uh, and in the starting points, um, we teach every high school subject except for math and science. We do teach science, but only a history of science as it relates to the origin of the world. But we're teaching all the other subjects that uh, are normally taught, but we don't teach them in isolation. And, and that's a, one of the uniqueness and distinctives, I think, of Cornerstone, is that I don't have a history course and a philosophy course and a political course. They're, they're integrated together. And the force of the learning is so much greater when you do it that way, Israel. And also... The amount of time that it takes is greatly reduced. So, for example, if you're reading uh, Plato's Republic, well, that's a book that you would read in a literature course, but it's a book about government. It's also a philosophical book, and if you write uh, any articles on it or any essays on it, then you get composition. So within that one book, basically, you have five different subjects going simultaneously. It's much more powerful uh, than the isolation, the compartmentalization that we all uh, we're exposed to in our own personal learning. Uh, uh, but, though I do admit that it makes it a little harder for the parent because we're not accustomed to that. A lot of times people say, well, can you, can you spread your book apart into all these different subjects? And you go, no, I wouldn't want to because I want to show that all life is interconnected. Yes. It's not in isolation. Integrated. 
Yeah, integrated together. Now, in the Philippians, on the First Peter five, do you read that? I'm First Peter three. Um, but in your heart, set Christ apart as holy, and acknowledge Him as Lord. Always be ready to give a logical defense to anyone who asks of you to account for the hope that's in you, courteously and respectfully. Always being ready. And what Paul, what Peter is saying here, you should always be learning. It's not a point in time, but it's a point in time and then it extends. And so we as adults are learning. It, it's one of the great beauties of homeschooling. We, we don't know all the answers. And, and I'm, I always admit to our children, you know, let's, let's learn this together. And I think it's, honestly, it's, I think one of the reasons why homeschooling is so successful, because in most cases in a school setting, the teacher tells the answer before the child's had an opportunity to think it through. But if you want it to stick, honestly to stick, it's when you think things through for yourself. With guidance, of course, because you're not wanting them to go off in a thousand different directions. You're trying to you know, lead them in a specific way. But you want to help students think things through. And when you do that, they own it for themselves. And that's my hope. That's my prayer. That's my goal. When a child is 20 or 25 or 30, you know, they're going, I, I can make this decision based upon this that I learned in this course that gave me direction for my life. Well, I'm grateful that you have uh, invested so many years of your life into developing your curriculum to developing many workshops that uh, people can probably find if, even if they just Google search uh, David and Shirley Quine and, and look up. Uh, there's lots of conferences around the country that they can just download workshops off of those websites. I don't know if you download any off your website or not, but you guys have uh, audios on your website or should they get them from the conference mainly? Well, we're, we're working on that on our own website. We have a few uh, small things, but okay. that's something that we're working on. Absolutely. Yeah, so for now, you know, uh, check back on the website and make sure that you listen to some of their workshops too because that gives you a better understanding of the philosophy uh, that, that they have built into Cornerstone Curriculum. I highly recommend uh, their materials. I think you will find that it's... Um, it's rigorous, but it's doable. And so the students um, can do it. They won't be overwhelmed by it, but it is going to challenge them and it is going to make them think, which is a goal. Uh, that's what we're hoping for. And um, so I hope to have you guys back on the podcast again in the future. Um, Dave and Shirley are, are people that I look up to and appreciate for their faithfulness and their leadership uh, for many years uh, within the homeschooling community. And um, we want to direct people to your website, which is? Uh, CornerstoneCurriculum.com. CornerstoneCurriculum.com. They also have a Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Cornerstone Curriculum. And uh, you can email them, quine at CornerstoneCurriculum.com if you have questions. Uh, or David said that you could even text him if you have a question. And I don't know of any other curriculum publishers that do that, but why don't you put your uh, number out there again, David, in case somebody wants to send you a text and just ask you more uh, information about the curriculum. Right. It's uh, 469-222-5149. Text or call. 
either way. Excellent. Excellent. Well, God bless you guys. And uh, Lord willing, we will be able to meet up again at a real conference somewhere in the United States. Once all this, uh, at the time that we're recording this, this is in the middle of the COVID-19 lockdown. And so we are uh, hound. And that's strange for all of us because we're used to, especially this time of year, being out on the road at conferences. And we want to be able to, um, to meet you guys and to be able to uh, see you in person. So make sure that if you, if you can follow them on Facebook, do you guys do an email list? We do. Okay. Yes. So how can people sign up on your email list? For example, uh, we've been doing a uh, uh, weekly prayers, uh, daily prayers for, uh, we did, uh, uh, we're right now we're doing 52 weeks of prayer, praying through the word of God. Oh. Uh, and, um, that's, mm. uh, part of our cornerstone curriculum. Um, you know, we plan, we plan, we plan, but we need to pray. Yes. And uh, so, yes, you can sign up for that um, as well as on our, on our website. Excellent. Um, you know, we're, we're glad to invite you into our home. And uh, we were talking before how that Israel and his mom visited us many, many years ago. And um, if, if you live in the Dallas area, if you're driving through, feel free to, you know, give us a call and stop in. We'd love to chat with you. Thank you, Israel, so much. God bless your family. Oh, thank you much. Love you guys. Love, Love you, you too. Hope to see you soon. All right. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit familyrenewal.org.